0: The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry.
1: Our sermon today is taken from Revelation chapters 15 and 16. These have to do with the seven bowls of God's wrath. The seven bowls of God's wrath. Here as I read now chapter 16, and then I will give you a a very quick outline, and we'll dive into the two chapters. This is God's word. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, And it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God or blasphemed Him. God who had power over these plagues, they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the king's From the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. It isn't Satan's day, it's the day of Jesus Christ, God Almighty. And he says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city, and remember, this is Babylon, so this is the earth. This is human society against God. It was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. This is the destruction of the world. This is the day of judgment. This is what all these other judgments are leading to. They're all gracious warnings that unless you repent, this day will come upon you. A day of which there is no escape. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. I want to look at these two chapters under the three headings of preface, which is verses 1 to 4 of chapter 15, presentation, which is the rest of chapter 15, and then punishment, chapter 16. So preface. This is our introduction, if you will, to these next set of punishments. We have now come to the fifth parallel section of the book of Revelation. You will, I hope, all recall the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven histories, and now the seven plagues, as they are called in verse 1. Now later, these plagues or catastrophes are called the seven vials or bowls, depending on your translation, and they are bowls of wrath because they are the symbolic vessels that hold the miseries of judgment. Now, in the Old Testament, bowls are frequently what hold the punishments of God. He fills up the bowls and then he pours them out on the wicked, sometimes to Israel, sometimes to the Gentiles. Well, that's the same picture here in chapters 15 and 16, from the Old Testament. You will remember, I trust, that these cycles of seven structure the book. Revelation is not written as a chronological story, one event in time coming after the other. Instead, it's made up of seven sections which cover the same time period. They parallel each other, and they give a different perspective on the period between the first and the second comings of Jesus Christ. So the seven churches section tell us during this entire age that there will be a battle in the churches between God and Satan. The seven seals show that men will rebel against God all through this time period and that God will partially judge them. The seven trumpets further warn of judgment and they increase the punishments. We'll talk more about that later. The seven histories display Satan and his servants persecuting the church of God and the Lord protecting his people. We are now coming to the seven plagues or seven bowls of God's wrath. And the same time period is in view. And the theme here is God's judgment against those who refuse to learn from the lighter punishment. The bulls symbolize God's final wrath in this life, during this age, on the unrepentant. In the seals, way back earlier in the book, the miseries that came from God on sinners were described as covering a quarter of the earth. That denotes, as we said at the time, partial judgment. In other words, God is still patient. Then in the trumpets, the next set of seven, the judgments are described as covering a third of the earth. And when the world doesn't listen to God, he increases their troubles. Now coming to the bowls, God's punishment is described as final, or the last, or the finish. They are said to cover all the earth. They're not partial. They're complete. Chapter 16 will tell us that these bowls are poured out on those who have refused to heed the lighter previous judgments. a good way to remember the parallel progression, because that's what we have in these sections. They're parallel and yet the focus increases toward the end of the period and the severity of the judgment. So a good way to remember the parallel in these sections is this. Trumpets warn, bowls are poured out. Trumpets warn of judgment, bowls actually pour it out to a great degree now not to the degree in the next age the judgment of hell will be greater than these earthly in this period final judgments but these judgments are awful they're horrific when the trumpet sounded some partial judgments came and there was time for people to repent God was patient, that should have led people to what? Repentance, Paul says in Romans. But there comes a time when people harden their hearts and they reject all of that patient waiting, and then God brings bowls of wrath. All of these things happen simultaneously around the world in this time until Christ returns. In some places, God is patiently trumpeting warning for unbelievers to repent. He does this through the terrible everyday occurrences we hear about on the news and know from our own experience. But at some point, he stops blowing the trumpet. And his hands move to the bowl. And he starts to pour them out. And that's when there is no more time and he destroys those sinners. The Old Testament portion that underlies the symbols in these two chapters is God's redemption of Israel from Egypt. Those ten plagues and the exodus were real historical events, but they also typified how God saves his people all throughout history. Remember that God warned Pharaoh with lesser judgments, but he kept rejecting those trumpet blasts. He kept hardening his heart, didn't he? And then God poured out the bowl of his wrath by destroying the firstborn and Pharaoh and his army in the sea his patience came to an end. His warning judgments, which were severe in themselves, came to an end, and worse came. That story illustrates God's dealings with sinners in the New Testament era. And so these inspired chapters describe the seven disasters in terms of seven plagues right out of Egypt. And the specific punishments correlate to the Egyptian ones. But today, even with the world under judgment, God rescues a people. These New Testament people of God are redeemed not because of their ethnicity, not because of some biological connection to Abraham. No, these are those who, according to verse 2, had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. In other words, these endured in faith they patiently overcame and now saved. What do these heavenly saints do? Well, they imitate their forerunner in the faith, Moses. They sing. After God has powerfully rescued them from their enemies, they sing. Notice they sing a song that has two names. Many of you know that a lot of Puritan works have two titles. you will say, you know, a short thing and then a really, really long thing. Well, thankfully, these are two short names for this same hymn, right? It's called The Song of Moses, The Servant of God, and it's also called The Song of the Lamb. What follows is not a quote from Exodus, although it obviously alludes to Moses' song. It's not a psalm. This song of Moses and Christ is a song about God triumphing. It's the praise of God's people in every age who have been rescued by the powerful work of God Almighty. Every one of you, ransomed from your spiritual Egyptian bondage should praise the Lord in song. And this song should also remind us that the perfected saints don't have any problem with God dispensing justice. What a strange thing to sing about if you were to compare this hymn with many modern songs. Neither should we today, even as we work and pray, that God would rescue sinners from their spiritual slavery. Notice where these singers are standing. They are standing beside the sea. As we've explained earlier, the sea in the Old Testament is a place of danger and darkness, a place of rebelliousness and restlessness. But that isn't the saint's experience at all, is it? Instead, their heavenly setting is a calm sea. Have you ever been out on a pond or a lake and the water is just as, it's like a sheet of glass? It's just that calm and that quiet. It's a wonderful feeling. It's a wonderful view. It doesn't happen very often. In this Symbolic vision of heaven, peace and rest reigns. That is what supports the feet of the saints. They stand beside a calm sea. That contrasts with the dragon who, you may recall, stood by the sea of this world back in chapter 12. The sea of glass symbolizes the peace and purity of life in God's presence. But the serene waters, you'll notice, are also tinged with what? Fire. (laughs) And fire in Revelation always points to God's judgments. From heaven will come God's righteous rage upon the unrepentant. You see, the Lord isn't issuing judgments because his throne is under attack and He's frightened that maybe he's going to be pushed off his throne. He's not threatened in the least. He's not striking out because Satan has snuck in the back door or come powerfully in through the front one and is about to dethrone him. No, God's heaven is calm. His people are undisturbed. Now, why God is pouring out wrath is because He is just and true in all of His ways. Verse three. It is good and strengthening to reflect on what this song teaches us about God. In short, it describes Him as an absolute sovereign, all powerful and holy, one who does righteous wonders. And that is the only way that God is and does. That is in one sense a full description of him. He is not the least bit unrighteous. He does not ever have to be answerable to men. <laughs> what a wicked idea. That the sinful creature has a right to demand of his righteous maker. Why are things the way they are? <laughs> he does no wrong and he owes us no explanations and I trust this will quiet every believing heart and may it even inform the answer that we give to other to others to unbelievers when we explain the hope that is within us. That's the preface, our introduction. Now more quickly let's move to verses 5 through 8 which is the presentation. there's there's a little ceremony that's described here. There's a presentation, there's a whole ritual about these bowls of wrath. Notice that they are given by God to his servants, the angels, through the living creatures. The scene is still heaven, which is simultaneously a throne room and a sanctuary of worship. God is present, and it is from him that these judgments come. That's the point of... Verse 5, he inhabits the sanctuary, and these judgments come from him. These bowls are full of what verse 7 calls, not the wrath of the angels, not the wrath of men, but the wrath of God. It belongs to him. Now, the angels dispense God's wrath but it belongs to God, and he hands it to them. Vengeance is his, says the Lord. He will repay, Romans 12, 19, and here he is doing it. The God of wrath is holy, verse 4, and so are his angels, his servants who execute his judgments. Notice their symbolic dress is described as being pure and bright. It's very much like Christ's. That was described back in chapter one. And it also reminds us of the dress of the Old Testament priests. But the main point here is their purity. When the angels dispense God's disasters, they are doing a holy work and they remain holy. They begin with white garments and they end with white garments. This is a righteous service that they are doing. And again, we are forced to see from our Bibles that God's plagues are not cruelties from the hand of a malevolent being. They are the righteous acts of the one true God who is just and true in all His ways, period, end of thought. And when his servants administer his justice, they continue holy also. The Lord in his holy temple is righteously angry with the wicked, how often? Every day, the Bible says. That's what the smoke symbolizes. Because his justice is his glory, his power is his glory, and so the temple is filled with the smoky resplendence of God. That brings us to punishment, which is chapter 16. This is the actual pouring out of the bowls. They're not just planned. They don't just come from God and are handed to the angels. They're distributed. The seven bowls, that is the completeness of God's wrath, is poured out for this age in chapter 16. Some of the details may sound familiar. We've already mentioned the similarities with the Egyptian plagues. There are also many parallels with the trumpets of judgment from several sections back. They both begin by pouring out judgment first on the earth and then on the sea and then on the waters and then on the sun. But the bowls are more severe. And they illustrate the truth that even in these parallel accounts of the time of the church age, There is progression in God's purposes with various peoples across the globe. And the closer we get to the end of the book, the more the focus will be on the end of this age and the severity of God's wrath on sinners and at the same time, the glories that are the inheritance of the believers. They both get... Grander, if you will. Everything will intensify as we travel on in Revelation. Now, the first five plagues teach us that God may, in his sovereignty, send severe and even final punishments on the unrepentant in this life. He has that right. He's not obligated to be patient forever. Notice that these seven bowls of the wrath of God are always said to fall on sinners, not saints. Now, that's stated in several ways. They come on those who are said to bear the mark of the beast and worship its image. In other words, God's full wrath is for those who rebel against God with their intellects, they don't love him with their minds, and worship idols. His righteous rage is poured out on those who shed the blood of the saints and prophets, verse 6. Wrath comes to blasphemers and the unrepentant, verse 9. They have had opportunities to turn from their sins, but they have not, and so God gives them justice. These are men who do not repent of their wicked deeds, verse 11. The bowls of wrath come to those who have spurned earlier warnings and have hardened their hearts against God's patient but difficult dealings with them and even in their misery they curse God and return and refuse to turn from their sins now it's true that the saints will often experience troubles from these plagues because they live in a world with unbelievers They live in Babylon. And the judgments, the plagues, come on Babylon. There will be overflow, if you will, or backflow, or some such thing. But none of these miseries are the wrath of God to saints. They are trials that God uses for their good and ultimate salvation. And they are reminders of what we will miss eternally. For no believer will ever know an ounce, a drop of God's wrath in hell. Why? Because Jesus Christ, our leader greater than Moses, has redeemed us from spiritual bondage and is bringing us successfully into the promised land. He has freed us from our sins and he is carrying us to the new heavens and the new earth. And so while we walk in the wilderness of this world, we will see and feel some of the troubles of the wicked. We will share them with them. But it is never wrath for or on us. Christ drank all the contents of all Every bowl of wrath in our place. And so we are justified by His blood. And we are saved from the vengeance of God. Romans 5, 9. By grace we have believed. And so the wrath of God, what? Does not abide on us. It doesn't remain on us. John 3, 36. Jesus is the one we wait for. Why? Because at His return, He will deliver us forever from the wrath that is coming upon us. The unbelieving, 1 Timothy one i I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians one ten. Now this chapter also tells us that the ways in which this wrath comes is varied. It is universal. Wherever rebels live, God brings wrath. Land or sea, even outer space, will not protect anyone from God's plague. Some will experience one kind and others will experience another kind. Some will be personal and others regional or global. But the bowls will be poured out and wrath will come to the unrepentant. That's really the first five bowls. When we get to the sixth and seventh bowls, the time frame is a bit different. We know that by comparing these parallel parts with each other. The sixth bowl is poured out just before the end of the age. I think that's clear even when we read these verses. What's going to happen then? Well, one of the things that will happen, and you have to read all the sections to know all the things that will happen, but here what's highlighted is that the beastly nations, the nations under the control of the evil one, will conspire together to wage war against Christ and his church and their goal is its utter annihilation the way will be made easy for them that's the picture of the euphrates drying up which drawing drying up which you may recall from previously is a symbol of making it easy for an army to advance there'll apparently be nothing to stop the dragon and the anti-christian governments and false religion from overwhelming the saints and they will symbolically converge at a place called Armageddon. Now, the name means mountain of Megiddo. But in fact, in the Old Testament, and even today, the physical place is a large, flat plain. And so it's capable of holding huge armies. This is where the Lord defeated the Canaanites and their general Sisera, back in Judges chapter 4 and 5. He gained the victory largely through two women, Deborah the judge and Jael, the stake and hammer woman. So the reference to Armageddon shouldn't dismay you. If you're a believer, don't be frightened of Armageddon what it should do is fill you with anticipation that when that day comes when all of the devil's forces conspire to once and for all destroy the church that's the very moment of Christ's return and the victory over the final victory over all of his enemies he will Christ will come and win a great victory for his people This will happen at his appearing verse 15 again what's described as the great day of God the Almighty it's really not the day of Satan it's not the day of armies it's not the day of uh, of course those people will be there those evil ones will be there but victory belongs to the Lord it's that simple there's no question about it it's prophesied ahead of time and it's it's the only thing that will happen it will surely happen it will happen at God's appointed time and place it places and It will be the end. When the church's situation appears desperate, Christ will come, and what will he he pronounce? He will say what? It is done. It's done. It's over. At the cross, Jesus obeyed his Father even unto death, and then announced, It is finished. At his second coming, it will be announced. It is finished. It is done. It is over. I have won. God will on that last day remember all of his enemies. And he will do the fullness of this awful phrase. He will drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. In other words, he will take full vengeance on the wicked and he will destroy their world in order to establish a new one for the saints. The cities of the nation will fall so God can renew the earth and bring the new Jerusalem to it. Heaven will come to earth. God will dwell with men and peace and righteousness will reign forever we will stand figuratively next to the sea of glass. I have three uses. First, let us learn that every plague upon the wicked is ultimately from the holy hand of God. Every plague upon the wicked is ultimately from the holy hand hand of God if you are a Christian if you know God in his character rightly at all you will agree with that and even glory in that you will not shy away from it you will not make excuses you will not deny it whatever discomfort you feel chalk up to your remaining sin. That will all be taken care of someday. Every trouble, every misery, great or small that unbelievers experience comes from the righteous throne of our Creator. And we must believe this if we are to be scripturally motivated to properly love and speak to the unbelievers around us. God brings these plagues upon them to warn them of the wrath to come. And so we say with John the Baptist, flee from the wrath to come. Run away as fast as you can. Well, where do I run? You run into the arms of Jesus. He stands with open arms. His arms are not folded. He will not reject you if you will repent and come to Him in faith. If you will say, you are my only hope to Him he will embrace you and you will be saved and you'll be removed from wrath and placed into joy and glory. This is a truth that should drive us to prayer and to witness. And it pushes us to explain people's need for Jesus Christ. The problem isn't that they have a few imperfections and if they could just add Jesus to the rest of their life, oh, life would be pretty good. No, it's it's not that at all. <laughs> it's you're under the wrath of God if you are not a Christian, if you're not a believer, you're under the wrath of God. And there's nothing and no one who can save you from that except Jesus. So that's why he's so valuable. But this truth also teaches us we must never apologize for God's character, including his justice. When sinners taunt us, and you've all heard this in in a hundred or a thousand different ways, why does your supposedly good God allow evil in the world? And on and on they go. We must not respond with wicked explanations such as Well, he's not strong enough to do that. Or, well, it's a yin and a yang thing. You know, he's not perfectly holy. He's also got this other side to him. Or, well, he's given men free reign to do what they will, and he, he can't or won't interfere. Don't blaspheme God this way. We must say with the inspired Paul... Who are you to talk that way to God? God has never been unjust to any man who has ever lived. No one can point the finger at him and charge him with unfair treatment. If, if this section doesn't teach us two things... I don't know what it teaches. It teaches us that God is holy and that these plagues come from God. They don't come from the devil. They don't come merely from men, although they can come that way. There's an ultimate sender of these things, and it's the holy God. That's the God of the Bible. That's who Jesus is. That's who you need. Don't deny him. God is glorified when he shows his wrath to vessels of wrath. Oh, Christian, have a big, strong, biblical view of God, who is love, yes, but is also just in every facet of his character and in all of his actions. So that's our first use. Every plague upon the wicked is ultimately from the holy hand of God. Secondly, every trouble in this life should draw us to God. Every trouble in this life should send us running to Jesus Christ. People will often say, believers and unbelievers, this isn't right, the world isn't supposed to work this way. And that perception is often true. Sin has corrupted the wholeness, the peace, the joy of life. And when we feel the pinch of misery or the blast of the seven plagues, we should turn to God. This is the great tragedy in our passage. Do you see it? That no matter what comes to these rebels, no matter how strong, how horrific the plague is, they refuse to seek relief from God. They will do anything except that instead they blaspheme him and reject him and curse him. You say that? That's insane. Why don't they turn? I can tell you why they don't turn from the lips of Jesus because they don't want to. Because they hate God and will would rather die and suffer anything than be right with him on his terms. Oh, they'll be right with him on their terms. But then they've made themselves god and they've become idolaters, right? They put themselves in his place. No, you have to do this on God's terms. You do it his way or it it's ineffective. Why do people act so insanely? You see, they bear the mark of the beast. Their minds are captive to him. And so they hate God and they love their sin and they would rather live under the plagues than repent and believe. So they refuse to come. And it's also true that they cannot come and it's also true that they will not come. And there again is a reminder to Christians in this. We must not think that if things get bad enough in an unbeliever's life, oh, surely they'll turn to God then. Only if God draws them. Only if he regenerates them. Now, God may use terrible miseries in a person's life to get his attention. He has their attention. It says right here, not that they blasphemed false gods or that they got angry at um, other people. Or they knew who these things are from. They're from God. And so they cursed him and defied him. So unless grace accompanies the miseries, these will look at God and curse him, as in verses 9 and 11 and 21. You see, these sinners know in their hearts that God is just in all of this. And they even know that these judgments come from God. Read Romans chapter 1 and 2 if you need further support from that outside of our chapters. But when he knows that, instead of fearing God, it just makes him hate him all the more. So if you're not a Christian here today, do you understand how corrupt your heart is? Do you see how desperately wicked you are in your sins? Do you see how much you need Jesus Christ, the one who bore God's wrath in the place of his people? You see, unless there is a but God moment in your life, you'll just continue to act like all these others do in responding to the wrath of God. Unless God sends interrupting intervening, interposing grace, you'll stay a rebel. In other words, God will simply treat you with justice. He will not treat you unfairly. He will treat you fairly. He will treat you the way you want to be treated. That's why we need to be praying for all of those who are under the wrath of God. That he would join grace to their troubles so that they will willingly turn to Christ to be rescued. Oh, brothers, beg God for grace for your lost friends and family. I can't change them. You can't change them. God is the only one who can change their... Pharaoh-like hard hearts. And they must have a new heart or they will perish. So pray. (laughs) The third, and, and finally, by way of use, I hope it's obvious from our text that if you are rescued from wrath, you should sing. Being rescued from wrath should cause us to sing God's praise. Every Christian should be a singer. Maybe not a soloist. But every Christian should be a singer. (coughs) We should sing songs rooted in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We should praise God for his being and his character. We should sing that God is true and just in all his ways. We should rejoice in God's victories. And we plan to do that as a church this afternoon at the baptisms and the supper. Because the four that we are going to see baptized have been granted salvation by this Christ through judgment. They have been under judgment, and now they're free from it. And this very visible symbol of death and life, of resurrection, of being united to Christ, should bring great joy. It's right to sing, and we do plan to sing. And so, we'll keep the ordinances, Lord willing, and we will sing to the praise of God's glory. And this is right and good because God deserves not just our our spoken praise, our our logical uh, statements of truth. He deserves our minds, our wills, our emotions, our our hearts. He, He deserves all of us. And singing lets us do that. Brothers and sisters, today we sing by faith. The day is coming very soon. We are going to sing in sight. And the singing is going to get better. And the congregation is going to get bigger. But until then, if you've been rescued, you sing. Let's
0: pray. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church and is calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.